everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. This is our uh, Colonomic Action Team webinar, and we have a very special guest, Steve, with us, and we're going to get to know him in a little bit. Uh, but first, I would like to uh, welcome everybody in the audience, and uh, please type in a one if you can hear me and if you can see the screen and if you can see the webcam, you can see Steve um, over there. Please welcome everybody and also welcome Steve to our webinar. So how are you today, Steve? Great. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for joining, Steve. Um, would you tell us a um, little bit about yourself and the concept behind the no-till um, um, and we see that it's a 501c3 would you tell us what that means and um, your mission briefly um, what you're trying to do and achieve um, that would be great sure well uh, thanks for having me my name is Steve Swaffer uh, I'm the executive director with no-till on the plains uh, we are a 501c3 agricultural education organization. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in north central uh, Oklahoma, uh, working on my grandparents' wheat and cattle farm. Uh, I also uh, spent a fair amount of my time and graduated from high school uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I had the benefit of both uh, the rural lifestyle as well as an, an urban uh, exposure to that lifestyle as well. Um, I went to the University of Kansas for two degrees, one in uh, uh, biology and then also my master's degree is in aquatic ecology. Um, and how that translates to farming, uh, it really doesn't other than ecological concepts apply across various systems. Uh, I have spent the last 22 years working with agricultural producers, both for no-till on the plains and prior to that, working for the Kansas Farm Bureau as their natural resources director. So uh, no-till on the plains, again, is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. Uh, our mission is to uh, provide high quality education and networking for agricultural producers looking to use systems-based agriculture. And, and when we say systems-based agriculture, that means that uh, all of the landscape and the various organisms and systems uh, on that landscape work together uh, in a biological system. And so a little bit different than the concept of what we know as modern agriculture, which is very monoculture uh, uh, heavy, uh, corn uh, or soybeans or wheat are grown consecutive years, oftentimes multiple years in a row with very little rotation between crops and is heavy in tillage, meaning that after crops, uh, the field is worked uh, with uh, various implements, but typically the soil is disturbed. And so what we try to promote is uh, something that promotes the five soil health principles, always keeping the soil covered and protected, 
keeping a, a diverse number of plants uh, growing, uh, keeping a root growing for as many days as possible, uh, and using uh, no soil disturbance. And then the final one is livestock integration. And, and using those principles, we're having a much greater uh, mimicking of the natural cycles that we would see in an undisturbed system uh, out on the landscape. And so our idea is to bring uh, methods, practices, and concepts to producers um, and, and allow them to uh, network with one another to see uh, what others are trying on their farms. Uh, and then ultimately, hopefully to produce food uh, in, in a different fashion than, than what we see in most modern agricultural settings these days. So that's a little bit about myself and the organization. Okay, and where are you based in? And uh, yeah, just first let us uh, know where you're based in. Sure, uh, so the, the uh, headquarters of No-Till on the Plains is located in Barrington, Kansas. It also happens to be where I live, uh, but our region of effect uh, is much greater than just this small area or even Kansas. We uh, have a, a, a really a regional impact here in the, the plain states of Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Texas, Colorado, Missouri, but uh, our influence and, and our following is across North America, and we have international following as well. So we really are trying to uh, have a global impact and are beginning to have folks uh, tune in and, and be a part of our uh, presentations, our conferences, our field days from all over the world. So, um, so you're, you're um, depending on, on online mediums to uh, send your um, teachings or, or your courses, is that correct? So you're um, using either some of the platforms? Yeah, so we, uh, we do a, a number of different things. Obviously, the pandemic changed how we uh, delivered our, our material uh, and, and our uh, content for the last 18 months. But prior to that and, and uh, this coming year, we will have many in-person events on, both on farms and uh, No-Till on the Plains is probably best known for its annual winter conference, which occurs every January. Uh, this January 2022 will be the 26th annual conference and will take place in Wichita, Kansas. Um, so how would you, um, you said that um, your system is slightly different from a modern um, agricultural system that uh, others might use. How would you um, make the distinction between you and any other, let's say, general mainstream farming? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really centered around those five soil health principles. So uh, we'll start with uh, keeping the soil covered. Um, so what we want to see is a, a 70 percent or greater uh, percent of the soil covered at any given time uh, of the year. And that's done primarily through two, two things. Uh, one is crop residues that are left uh, after harvest. And then secondly would be the addition of cover crops during those periods uh, when cash crops aren't grown. Again, providing that, that shading, that uh, insulation, that temperature control, and 
moisture control uh, uh, in those times where typically uh, a producer would be fallow. Uh, so trying to have something out there covering the soil, keeping it protected. Uh, secondly, would be keeping a, a living root in the soil for as many days as possible. Uh, so in, con in conventional agriculture, we often see once the crop is harvested, then uh, nothing has uh, been planted back into those soils until the successive crop is, is seeded. Uh, in the system that we promote, uh, as soon as a crop is harvested, whether it be another cash crop, a double crop, or a cover crop, we like to see that, that ground seeded once again uh, and growing something so that the, the uh, exudates from plant roots, which are, are a sugar-based uh, substance coming out of those roots are feeding that microbial system uh, in the soil. Uh, disturbing the, the soil as little as possible. That's where the origin of this organization, no-till, came from, meaning that the soil is not routinely uh, either plowed or disked or cultivated or harrowed. Any of those conventional agricultural so soil disturbance and typically done for either weed control or, or seedbed preparation. None of that occurs in the system uh, that we promote. It's really only the time the soil is disturbed is when you're planting the seed. So we're opening up that V and then we're putting the seed into it and we're closing it back up. And that's really the, the primary uh, time that the soil is disturbed under a soil health system. Livestock integration is, is another one of those soil health principles that uh, really is uh, a result of the uh, separation of enterprises uh, in modern agriculture. Um, when we were younger people and, and in our uh, grandfathers, uh, the livestock were a, a major part of the cropping fields. So they were allowed to graze, they were allowed to defecate, they were allowed to urinate on those fields. And as the separation of those enterprises, the livestock were removed from the landscape, we didn't get the benefit of that grazing. We didn't get the benefit of the manures and the urines. And so integrating those animals back into the system, just as we would see in a, in a natural ecosystem, is just another one of those uh, soil health principles and returning the soil uh, back to a more natural operating uh, system. So really it's all centered around those those five soil health principles. Awesome. I think Wayne with us. Uh, Wayne, can you? Hey, how you doing, Steve? How you doing, Mark? Hi, Wayne. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. Sorry, I was a little bit late. I'm actually out on a field project in, in Michigan and finished um, rowing a, a kayak around out in the pond doing uh doing some work there and, and thought i was going to be on time and i just got a few minutes late um so steve's so excited that you're here with us um steve and i had a great talk several weeks ago everybody and and i just knew that he was going to be a, a blessing for all of you and talking about what his passion is and, and uh, i've been listening for the last i think almost since the start and um Mark, I'm going to let you continue to ask questions for just a minute while I get set up in a little bit better location, um, so I can uh, so I can speak a little bit better. So why don't you ask uh, one or two more questions, and then I'll 
I'll join in. But thank you so much for being here, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, um, if you don't mind, some personal questions. So um, think about some mentors um, that you had while um, even in your childhood, growing up, or later on in your life that uh, you think had an impact on your career or uh, what you're doing today in any way? Sure. Um, well, I'd, I'd probably have to say uh, my grandfather would uh, definitely have been one of my early mentors. Um, he is the person that uh, took me to the farm and, and showed me about uh, farming uh, about at about the age of eight. I started to, to join him and, and help him a little bit. And, and uh, in addition to the, to the farm, he always encouraged me to, to, to watch what was happening around us, uh, particularly as we drove around. And, and uh, I would say he really was the one that, that began to hone my observation skills. Uh, so I can recall a particular incident where uh, we've been working on the farm and uh, I couldn't have been more than 12 or 13 years old. And I decided to take a nap on the way back to the house. And, and he intentionally woke me up and said, Hey, you really need to look around. It happened to be just about dusk and you really need to look around and, and see what's going on uh, as we drive home. And, you know, on the drive home, we saw deer, we saw Turkey, we saw quail and, and I, I guess that's really where my uh, skills for observing the natural systems began. I uh, didn't appreciate it at the time, but certainly do now. Uh, I had an advisor in graduate school who was uh, uh, very important in my life, Dr. John O'Brien, who is now deceased. Uh, but he also encouraged me to explore uh, various uh, aquatic systems uh, while I was in graduate school. And again, that was powers of observation. Um, but uh, probably in my adult life, the last 10 years, uh, it is the, the, the farmers that I have met, and there are numerous ones who were not afraid to uh, try something different, to uh, buck the system, if you will, uh, to try to produce crops in a different way that were uh, more friendly to the soil, uh, less intensive chemically, less intensive from a tillage standpoint, uh, and really embrace the diversity of plants as well as the animals. Uh, and so I, I could spend the rest of this time probably naming uh, those folks off, but uh, the founders of, of No-Till on the Plains would definitely be in that group, that founding board uh, that are in there, that were there when the organization got started. And I'll mention just a couple because I feel particularly close to them, but Keith Thompson from Osage City, Kansas, and Bud Davis, who was retired from NRCS, they would that would definitely count them in in my group of mentors. Um, okay, so now um, is there a, a book that you're reading right now that you would uh, recommend uh, to our audience, or uh, something that you're reading right now that you really think it's good? Um, yeah. Um, so a couple of books that that. Uh, I read and reread, um, uh, you know, are, are, are fairly uh, important to me. Um, and, and they're not, they're not 
necessarily uh, current books, but um, are something that that you know everyone should should read, and and that uh, would be Aldo Leopold's book. Uh, all of us who are uh, in in the natural systems of management and and uh, those that uh, want to be observers of, of nature, uh, that is a, a seminal book for certain. Um, but I would also say um, books by like Dirt uh, by David Montgomery uh, are ones that uh, people should always read. Um, but I, honestly, we're in gardening season, so my book reading is is a little less than it would be in the winter. And I did a lot of reading during the pandemic, so right now i i really haven't started anything new but uh yeah i, I would definitely read any of the books by david montgomery or Aldo Leopold. all right okay so i see that wayne is back on wayne uh yeah he's, he's back on so he might have some questions for you yeah i do i appreciate you guys just uh, those are great questions are ones that i always ask um Let's go back to uh, the founders um, of, of No-Till. Give us a story that you have about any of them that's either funny or insightful or, or something that you remember that, that's just kind of a, a cool story. Sure. Um, so uh, I've not been with the organization um, since its inception. Just the last eight years have I been here. but. Um, the two guys that I mentioned, um, uh, Bud Davis and Keith Thompson, uh, have both relayed this story to me, uh, and I can see it in, in my mind's eye as it happened. Uh, so they were on uh, Keith Thompson's farm, and they were uh, digging in the soil, uh, and they were uh, below the residue level. Um, and uh, as they dug, they, they saw something they had not seen before. Keith had been in uh, the no-till system uh, for 10 or 15 years and was beginning some cover crops, but there was a white substance uh, below the soil. And it ended up that uh, it was mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, and uh, Bud Davis was very excited about it and Keith didn't even really know what it was at the time. And so that that's a great story, um, but uh, I think the, the, the thing that sticks with me the most is anytime you put the shovel in uh, either a child or an adult's hand and the first time they come up with uh, a, a shovel full of soil and it's teeming with life, uh, whether that be earthworms or uh, springtails or uh, other macro invertebrates that you find in the soil, there, there's always this look of amazement on their face of, I didn't really realize how much was going on down there. And, and our traditional agriculture has really minimized the value of those microbial and macro invertebrate communities to the soil. And it's really fun to see somebody see that life the first time they come up with a shovel full of it. And Steve, I... Uh... Not on right from the start, but so if this is a repeat, just just tell me or tell us. Um, and this is going to be a little funny. So in in my part of the world, at least when I go through a winter in the in my soil, which is 
a, a silty loam, but we'll have we can have some very dry times. And it's now time to think about growing things in that soil in the spring. Um, and let's say it's the first time that you're you're growing using a no-till concept in a um, in a in a in a particular field. I don't think it means that you just take the seeds and you sprinkle them over the top of that hard ground that was never handled properly before. What do you define as a method of managing the soil to then allow you to be able to plant? for the first time when a soil has never been in a no-till system before? And I, I know the answer, but, but I don't think the audience probably does, so. Yeah, yeah so um, the it really starts before uh, that seed goes in the ground. Um, so if, if the soil is bare, it's gonna be hard and it's gonna crust over and it's gonna make it difficult for uh, the, the planting tool to penetrate down through that crust and, and create that, that V slot that you want. And so the, the season prior to converting to a no-till seeding methodology, we really want that, that field to have maintained the residue from the previous crop, meaning that it was not tilled, uh, meaning that it wasn't turned over, whether that be a wheat crop or a corn crop or whatever it was, leave that standing residue there. And if at all possible, get something growing uh, out there as soon as possible. It could be grazed, it could be just a cover crop to keep that living root. But we're really trying to create a, a, a nice, uh, mellow uh, soil that the very sharp planting implement can now get through. And so you will typically, with a, with a planting tool of a small, uh, grain, you will have two discs, they will be at an angle, and they will be very sharp. And that's very important that they be able to penetrate through the, the soil as well as the residues that are left there. And they are creating a very clean uh, cut through that soil. And now that seed is placed down at the at the bottom of that V groove. And behind it, there are there's an implement that is crumbling that soil back over that seed. It's not packing it down. It's just lightly crumbling it over that seed. And you hope that you don't get side smear because that creates compaction. And when I say side smear, that the side of that V notch is not smeared from that, that disc opener. It is just cut. Uh, and so you're really trying to create the best seed bed, say, seed bed that you can and the cleanest bee that you can. And so by covering that seed back up lightly and with adequate moisture, it should be able to germinate. It should be able to get water down uh, at least to that level where that seed is planted. Great, great explanation, really good. Mark, by the way, I, I won't be able to see them. So if you see audience questions that you wanna throw in at any time, go ahead and do that. Um, so do you have a, a any kind of an indication of how many acres in the U.S., let's say, today are being, um, uh, crops are being grown using a no-till method? Yeah, um, it's a, that's a, a quick question I get pretty frequently. 
Um, and uh, I, I can only give you my best estimate. So uh, I'll start with this, that not all no-till is created equal. Uh, and, and probably the, the term that we prefer is uh, either never-till or continuous no-till, meaning that uh, between crops, uh, there is not a tillage pass uh, over the field. And um, the, the number of no-till acres, so a soybean uh, uh, crop is harvested, and the following um, spring corn is planted in, there's no, no tillage in between. Well, a, a soybean crop doesn't leave a lot of residue. There's really no need for tillage, uh, except if the farmer likes it for a recreational purpose. We call that recreational tillage. Um, and, and that is in, in the National Ag Statistics Service, that is counted as no-till. But following that corn crop, the, the, the producer goes back and they actually till those corn stalks in. That's one version of, of, of no-till. That's a statistical or accounted no-till. What we're after is continuous no-till. And, and those numbers of acres are significantly smaller. Uh, and I would uh, give you my best guess that about 20% of the acres across the United States are in a continuous no-till system. Somewhere 33 to 35% are in a minimum till or that, that no-till situation that I described to you earlier, where there's not always tillage, but there is still some uh, regular tillage in the system. So, Depending on what that what that definition is, anywhere between 20 and 35 percent of the acres are in some sort of reduced or continuous no-till. Great answer. Um, what's a question that you get when you speak or when you when you are just with people that you are are somewhat perplexed by this is a real this is a tough one or you know that you, you just you don't really understand how to give an answer related to obviously related to to the no-till concept is there is there anyone that you get that you just sort of struggle with and even today you really don't have a good answer for <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one I, yeah, yeah. And it's it's mostly cultural wayne and that uh, I get younger guys say, well, how do I convince dad to let wow. me do this? Um, and, and quite honestly, um, dad has to see the numbers and he has to see the benefit to the farm. Um, and, and those, those are not always clear cut. Uh, and they certainly vary uh, ge geographically um, because water is, is, the most precious commodity that we have and you can't grow four crops in a year on 16 inches of moisture but you can grow two and so uh really it's it's about how do we get over that social hurdle because dad or grandpa has become accustomed to doing business uh with local uh farm suppliers he's become accustomed to doing business with a seed supplier He's become accustomed doing business with the co-op. And, and if you, you overturn all of those relationships uh, with those folks and now you're buying less, um, it, it's a difficult social change to make. And so 
that is probably the, the most difficult question we get because the answer is never the same from person to person. Right. Makes sense. By the way, isn't don't you think that's very typical of farmers, multi-generational farmers in, in, in general, which is almost every question you could ask that would would you know would be something new that they'd be doing that they would say why would i do that my grandpa did it this way and my dad did it this way and so i'm going to do it this way right i mean it's not so uh, marketing for example why why do you always take your your crop to the elevator versus other kinds of marketing dad did it grandpa did it i'm going to do it i don't yeah, think it's, it's just it's it's a cultural it is very cultural it's very much that way, um, and and the ag policy that exists really makes it difficult uh, to change uh, some of those things. Uh, you know, the, the tractor wasn't adopted overnight. Uh, it took nearly 25 years uh, from the time the tractor was first introduced for it to be a, a widely used new method. And so this is not this is not new. Uh, and particularly with the investments that are made into modern technology, it's it's maybe even more difficult to get uh, a widespread change to occur. Post planting, so a, a farmer has now adopted the no-till approach, and, that, and the answer may be different for uh, uh, let's say a first year versus subsequent years. But what is the difference in the way that you now manage that crop? through its growth cycle, whether it be with supplements, whether it be with fertilizers, whether it be the, your irrigation, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I, uh, there's a couple of answers to that, Wayne. One is uh, worry less about yield and worry more about profit. Um, and so if, if the, the local neighborhood is all about bushels per acre, uh, and you've been in that contest for years with the neighbors, it's going to be difficult because more than likely to change to this type of system, you're not necessarily going to have more bushels per acre uh, than your neighbor, but you may have more dollars per acre uh, than your neighbor. And isn't that the most important part? Um, or we all want to believe that it is. Um, the other uh, really adjustment is thinking uh, about the management of the crop itself. So in modern agriculture, we typically have thresholds, whether they be for weeds or for uh, uh, an insect pest. There's a threshold at which it's no longer tolerable and that's going to impact the yield. And so we've got to get out there and we've got to intervene for, on behalf of the crop. Now, I really think we have to start thinking a little differently about uh, what those intervention points are what those triggers for intervening might be. That's not to say those tools aren't useful and sometimes we do have to just save the crop, but there's a different thinking process now in the profit versus the yield. And is that actually going to pay for itself? So if I've got uh, a weed threshold out there and it's 10 weeds per acre, for example, and that's what the local agronomist says, well, now we need to get out and spray. I counted 10 in an acre. Uh, is that 10 really going to knock that yield back that much? Uh, and of course, it depends on the weed. Same with insects. Uh, Sugarcane aphids in our Milo crop uh, a few years back was definitely one of those where 
we really had to look at what stage those aphids were in, uh, how far along the crop was, and what our beneficial insect um, populations were at the time. And many guys were able to avoid that costly um, insecticide application because the aphids were far enough along in their life cycle, the milo was far enough along in its growth cycle, and the beneficial insect populations were high enough where we really weren't going to see an impact from those sugarcane aphids. Yet they were there and they were part of the field and many people went ahead and sprayed and they probably lost money because they weren't assessing the entire system that was out there. What a great answer. Um, by the way, I don't think that applies just to no-till. That's an attitude that anybody in a farming situation should have, which is think about profit. Um, a good, good friend of mine and, and a partner of mine in the, in the past, Mark Shepard, talks about what he calls stun, and, and he even himself will define that differently in different contexts. But it's either strikingly terrific utter neglect or um, seriously terrible utter neglect. But the point is, he said, if I can get my farming more and more towards stun, that means I'm using less and less of my time, which is the most valuable asset that I have, which gives me higher and higher profits in, in almost all. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's an attitude that's just vital. Um, and yet it's not the one that most people have. So staying on the, the you know, what extension agents will recommend and so on, is, is there a lot of pressure on, again, most farmers who have not yet adopted a no-till method to not do it? And where is it coming from today? I know it was probably in a different place 10 years ago. What, where is that, pre that negative pressure coming from? Yeah, there's um, there's there's really uh, quite a bit of of um, investment uh, into the iron manufacturing. So uh, there's a local. Uh, we'll pick on John Deere, but we could pick on Case. We could pick on any of the major equipment manufacturers, uh, and they're still selling tillage equipment. And so their local customer base that that shops at that local store. Uh, those folks are probably friends. They may go to uh, church together. They may have kids in school together. And so there's a there's a pressure there. You know, I'm in business, so you need to help keep me in business. Um, with the agronomy, um, that's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, your local agronomist and agronomist services uh, are somewhat dependent on the amount of product that they can sell their customer base, whether that be seed fertilizer, chemical, whatever it is, they are uh, on the hook to try and sell that product. Now, um, uh, counter to that is they can also sell cover crop seed and they can sell other diverse crops that aren't in our mainstream set of crops that, that, are, that are grown here, at least in the, in the Plains region. And then the, the, the USDA policies, uh, the Farm Bill uh, has a lot of rules and regs that, that farmers really have to comply with if they're going to be a part of those payments. So for instance, there are parts in the, in the West where uh, a cover crop has to be determined or terminated a certain number of days ahead of the planting of the cash crop 
in order to prevent it from robbing moisture. Uh, in the eastern part of the, of the same state, uh, they don't have to terminate ahead. Matter of fact, they can terminate that cover crop after the crop is planted. And so the policies that are uh, put there in place by USDA, particularly as it applies for crop insurance, have a big impact on uh, the, making these changes because now you're, you may be putting at risk some of those program payments from USDA if you uh, violate their rules anyway. And that all is, all of that's very unfortunate, especially the front end, the, um, because I think for the most part, uh, the farm community, the farm culture is a very um, people-centric one and very loyal one. And so that that pressure to support friends that might be the deer dealer or the case dealer or others and, and to buy equipment. Um, and then associated with that is that sometimes um, they the lenders make it very appear to be very easy to buy equipment. And so farmers get highly over leveraged at times um, with, with equipment purchases. And, uh, and once you get into that cycle, you usually it's hard to get out of it because usually you end up um, just kind of trading something in and that way you eliminate the, the, the need to come up with some big chunk of cash at some time and so on. And that's the other thing that for those of you that are listening that aren't in the farming industry, you need to understand that it's a very um, risky one in the sense that all your costs are up front and all your income is at the end. There is, there's just no middle ground typically. Um, and so you take all the risk, all the costs, and then you wait till even after harvest, sometimes long period of time, because you need to store until prices go to the point where they you believe they need to be before you can ultimately sell. So anyway, that, that's not something that is the case in all in very many businesses. And that's a long period of time. It's a it's a 90 day period at the minimum and six months or more in, on average. So you mentioned landlords, and, and that's another uh, negative pressure, uh, quite honestly. Um, landlords who may or may not have been attached to the land uh, in a previous, through a previous generation, uh, or may have been, uh, but no longer live close to that uh, piece of property. Uh, most of our farmers are dealing with multiple landlords, uh, and it, it, each one of them has their own expectations of either uh, a payment uh, related to the production on that land. It can be a crop share or a cash rent, or they have a particular way that they uh, want that land managed. And if that's how their grandfather's grandfather did it, it's probably going to be very intense in tillage and not very diverse in the number of crops that, that were raised. And so uh, farmers must uh, work through those relationships with those landlords. And uh, I'll point to a, a spot on our website, uh, a video uh, series we did with Ryan Spear and, and how he works with landlords to try and help them understand how soil health can improve not only their property, but also their bottom line. And, and uh, he shares the risk with them. And so 
uh, yeah, landlords are another big influence within decision making uh, in the agricultural community. Um, tell us again about your live conference. And again, because we've went through a, a year here where the pandemic wiped out most live conferences in the last year, and now we're moving ahead to where it looks like conferences are all going to be starting again. Tell us about the conference. Um, little bit maybe about costs uh you know if they're lodging right there if people come and and so on just sure. so that's a little bit more of a plug-in for that if we could sure so uh our 2022 conference will take place in wichita kansas uh it will be uh pre-conference workshops on january 24th and so there will be two workshops that day one is sort of that just basics of soil health all-day workshop. Uh, the other one is Advanced Concepts in Soil Health, again, an all-day workshop. The two-day regular conference will be January 25th and 26th. Each day we'll have a, a general session uh, where we'll open up the day with uh, a couple of inspirational and educational speakers. One of them is going to talk about uh, mental health aspects of farming and, and the, the things that changed his life and how he turned to soil health uh, to help his mental part of daily life. And uh, that's uh, Ben Taylor Davies, the second general speaker, Erin Martin. She's a gerontologist and she's going to talk to us about how soil health and food quality can help with the aging process. Um, one of the things that really struck me about her is some, some studies that she looked at that said, the pockets of 100-year-old people have one thing in common. They eat naturally grown foods and they exercise. And so uh, food as medicine is kind of the theme there. Uh, each one of those days will also have multiple breakout sessions where we'll have um, mostly producer speakers. Agricultural producers will make up most of our speakers. And each one of them will have hour-long breakout sessions. We'll also have several producer panels. Uh, one of the topics is going to be cover crops in a in an arid region and cover crops in a in a moisture rich region. Uh, livestock integration is going to be another one of our panels, and so that will occur on January 25th and 26th. The cost is $225 for those two days, uh, and you can actually combine those with a pre-conference workshop and get a discount. Um, there we will have the conference at the Wichita Marriott. Uh, there is uh, about a couple hundred rooms there, but there are lots of hotels locally right there within walking distance of that Marriott. So you can come, you can park, and you won't ever have to leave if you don't want to. We'll have lots of networking opportunities for you and uh, our speakers, as well as other producers from around the country and the world to, to interact with one another in, in a social setting as well. So again, January 24th through 26th, 2022 in Wichita, Kansas. By the way, everybody, that's a bargain price for a two-day conference and any, anything in the, I'll just broadly call it the um, alternative ag industry. Um, so that's a, that's a bargain. Um, and at the end, Steve talked about what I think a lot of people see as the most valuable thing for conferences, which is networking. And especially if you're new to this, um, you'll get so much out of just having the ability to talk to other people who are already doing it. And hopefully 
from wherever they're from is near where you're from and or similar situations that you would have um, in terms of your climate probably or your, your rainfall more than anything. Um, Steve, what is, what, what you said your best guess would be 25% of, of the land in, in the area that, that you have knowledge of that would, uh, the, the crops would be far, farmed today with no-till. What would be a goal for five years from now and let's say 10 years from now for that number to go to? And what's going to have to happen to be able to reach that, those goals? Yeah, um, I'd say five years from now, if we could inch that number up 15%, that would be a, a really good achievement. Um, 10 years from now, uh, I'd like to see more than 50% of the acres uh, in in crop production and um, and vegetable production uh, be in a continuous soil health system. Um, and uh, the things that are gonna have to happen is it's gonna be driven by consumers. There's gonna have to be a, a, a desire and a market for foods grown uh, in that system so that um, premiums can be uh, desirable and uh, available to those producers. Um, producers, uh, farmers, growers are uh, businessmen. And so they have to have a competitive advantage to make some of these change. And so motivating them by offering uh, the opportunity to, for them to make a little bit more money uh, for the investment and particularly for the risk uh, it's going to be a big part of that. Uh, addressing some of the USDA policies has to be a part of this. Um, we've seen the current administration give signals uh, that they will focus more on carbon farming or uh, practices that improve carbon in the soil. Uh, that is a big part of what happens in a soil health system is that there's uh, addition of carbon through organic matter. And there's not a release of that same carbon through tillage. Um, and so that is appears to be on the horizon, um, but I would expect at least based on the current uh, makeup of uh, our Congress, that it will be voluntary incentive based. Um, and that will be the, the first stepping stone. And then hopefully as the momentum uh, builds and Folks see that there is perhaps more money, uh, less investment uh, to be made in producing crops that way, it will just become a cultural norm. Um, that, that seems to be the best method to get the agricultural community to change is making it a cultural norm, not, not through a, uh, a top-down carrot and stick approach. And so, it, it, it does take time and more and more producers will adopt it as those premiums are, are made available and some of those negative forces are, are uh, either removed or certainly loosened just a little bit. Okay, great. Um, Mark, do you see any questions from the audience that are, that are throw in here? Um, I'm looking at the questions. Um, no, nobody has put anything yet, but uh, we can see if, you know, give them a couple of minutes. Yep, yep, we've got some time. That's why I was throwing it out now. 
Um, and this is one where please don't feel bad if you just don't have any, or if you don't feel like you have any answer at all. But what if I'm a, a very, very small farmer? I literally just produce in a quarter acre field behind my house for myself and my family and, and my neighbors. And, and you can do that, by the way. You can produce a lot of food on a quarter acre in certain locations. Is What would be a tool that you'd use for no-till? Because obviously you're not going to use a disc that no matter how sharp, because it's too big, to be using in your back, in, you know, in that very small size that you'd be working with. Is there yeah. any tools that you can help the people to know about? And again, if that's just not an area that you cover, just say that. No, uh, actually, I do that in my on my own, uh, Wayne. My my garden is quite large, and I try to practice what I preach. Um, and and there are there are some things that I do that anybody could do. Uh, one is uh, keeping that living root growing. So if you're 20 by 10 garden plot, um, or you're bigger than that quarter acre garden plot, um, is is going into a, a winter period. Um, where you're not going to be growing anything, find a winter hardy grass, a wheat, a rye, barley, and plant that. Uh, keep that that uh, soil fed during that cold period of the year. And then when it when it comes to spring, uh, there's already something growing there. And so you can then utilize that uh in your in your spring planting as well so you can roll that cover crop down you let it get uh, a stem on it uh and almost start to form a seed head or even form a seed head seed head and you then you can break that stem uh and that will terminate that plant and you can do that without tillage and you can do that without uh, a chemical application and so that's two fairly easy things that that most people can do that will have an immediate impact on their soil uh, and likely improve their garden. It will take a little practice. It takes a little management. Um, I plant that kind of thing more in strips uh, than I do uh, across the entire garden. Um, but keeping something growing uh, is probably the most important thing that a home gardener and a home food producer can do. Even if you don't intend to eat it, keep something growing out there. What a great, uh, great, great description there. That's awesome. Um, let's see. What, um, what would you say is uh, the best way that non-farmers out there um, totally urban folks. Maybe they're using, you know, aquaponic systems on their porches, or they've got something in their windowsill. Can do to help because I've heard you mention USDA a number of times, and, and haven't said it in a real positive way. That their their influence has, has been somewhat negative. What can people? What can non-farmers do to help here? Yeah. So um, I think the the one thing that they can do. Uh, to, is to educate themselves uh, about what is healthy soil. Um, even, on their, even on their lawn, uh, it's important that they have healthy soil. Understanding that um, growing something 
in, in a monoculture. So the the manicured lawns that we see uh, in our in our urban neighborhoods, that's not necessarily uh, the best thing for your soil. It may be the best thing to sell your house with, uh, but it's probably not the best for your soil. Understanding that uh, not every uh, plant that is uh, not a grass isn't a bad plant. Did you know that you can eat dandelions? Did you know that clovers provide pollen and nectar for bees to make honey? Uh, be a little bit more accepting of some of those other plants in your yard uh, because they're they're only helping your soil and they, they may be something that you could use as a resource yourself. And the other part of that is just understanding how food uh, in, in the United States is produced uh, and through the process politically, uh, how those policies that are set um, are voted on. Uh, we have a farm bill and that farm bill is typically uh, authorized every five years uh, and that gives direction to USDA. So you as a voter have an opportunity with your congressmen and your senators to, to make an impact and say, I would like to see more soil health friendly policy enacted in the next farm bill. It's pretty easy. Um, if they don't know what that means, educate yourself so that you can tell them what does a soil health friendly policy mean? Meaning that it encourages people to grow a diverse group of plants it, it, that they don't use tillage and the things that I've talked about leading up to now. There's there's pretty simple things that, that consumers can do as well. Ask how was this uh, particular plant grown? Do, can, the, can the grocer answer it? If not, why not? Uh, we have a pretty good understanding of what organic means. Uh, at least we think we understand what organic means. Did you know that organic doesn't mean no-till? Organic often does use tillage because that is their weed control method. Could the organic be no-till and use cover crops for weed control? It sure could be. And so all organic is not created equal. Just because it says is it it's organic, does that mean it's more nutrient dense than a conventionally produced piece of fruit? Definitely not. And so understanding what all these terms mean, understanding how you as a consumer can influence what's on the shelves by speaking to your grocer, um, those are all things that the average citizen can do that can support um, the production of food in a different fashion. That was a great answer. Um, and by the way, I love just talking about organic. And, and by the way, everybody may not know that there is a group out there that is working very hard to try to get another sort of designation made for the food we eat, which would be regenerative organic, where hopefully it would take into account um, a number of these other soil health related factors and nutrient rich um uh, relate situation of the food itself um, and there's even a move out there by the bionutrient food association and one of our speakers we've had several times um, and talking about how we maybe even could create some technology to where you can point it at um, an orange or a a, 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 a a batch of kale or a uh, or some lettuce or, or even a, a, some wheat in a, in a container 
and uh, and know what its nutrient value is um, right on your phone. I think that's going to happen. It's just a matter of time, just when that will happen. Um, so, Mark, any other questions? We've got about five minutes left. Um, Steve, you've been amazing. Um, and and I, I want to, I'm going to end the very last thing. I'm going to have you just give last little bit, not the detail you did before, but about the conference in, in coming up in January. And then um, anything else that, that um, you know, could a, could a non-farmer become a member? I'm, I'm assuming your organization is funded by some extent by members, fees and such. Um, isn't that maybe another way we could help support what you're doing? Yeah. Categories. Uh, sure. Um, so anyone that attends any of our events uh, through the year, we consider them a member. Um, we're, we're pretty broad in the way we look at our membership. We want we want people to want what we offer. Uh, so we don't charge a separate membership fee. Uh, and anyone can sign up uh, for our newsletters uh, at any point on our website. We do take donations on our website as well. Um, but we really want to encourage membership through participation. Uh, we have uh, a number of events coming up this summer uh, in, in this general region where we will be visiting uh, a, a soil health farmer's farm. Um, one is coming up on June 23rd in Blackwell, Oklahoma. We have another one July 15th out in Hugoton, Kansas. And if all things go well, another in uh, August uh, on August 10th up at Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rogers Memorial Farm. Those are all low cost events uh, and anyone is welcome, although we do have some, some limits, uh, people limits. But that's, that's the way we encourage membership is, is participation. And we don't exclude that to uh, just farmers. We have uh, foodies, we have gardeners, we have uh, the media, we have uh, conservation professionals. Uh, we have political figures all uh, invited and come to our events uh, throughout the year. And so it really is a, a broad base that we try to reach with the information that we can provide. Um, and, and then as far as the conference goes, uh, you know, we welcome anyone to come to the conference. Uh, I think it's an eye opener for someone who's never been to something like this and the, and the level of discussion uh, that occurs, particularly uh, outside our breakout sessions in the hallways and in the evenings at dinner time, uh, the networking that occurs, and the ideas that get exchanged. And, and it's not just about how do I grow a, a, a better corn crop or how do I uh, remove tillage from my system. It's a much broader uh, conversation that occurs uh, outside of those breakout rooms. We use that more as a catalyst for the conversations than than anything. So really anyone is welcome at, at our events. Awesome. Well, we are right getting up at the top of the hour. Mark, do you see any questions out there from the audience? And, and if you guys, you really should ask some. No bad questions, by the way. Um, no, I don't, I don't see any questions from the audience, but um, I have a question. What is the best way to um, get in touch with you? Is it through your website or uh, some other way? Yeah, so uh, through the website, there's a contact form that you can reach us. 
you can also just email us at info at notill.org uh, or you can call the the number at 785-210-4549 all of those are acceptable ways to to reach us if you have questions or you're you're looking for some information well, steve your knowledge is unbelievable your passion is catching and that and i caught it when we we talked and i've been a no till fan for many many years but your 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 uh enthusiasm even caused me to have more this has been awesome we might i told you this before if you would think about some other of your farmers who might be great speakers for us at some point we should so uh, i think that's on my end i think that's ringing somewhere else but there's a phone ringing there i don't know if you guys heard it um but anyway if you've got names and even maybe some of the founders if they're still around and you know, we'd love to have those folks on because that would even even promote what you're doing more so sure sure um, mark do you have any other questions or eve if you're out there you have any other questions anything we do you have a question nothing from my side right now i think it was pretty much right. well I, I, both of these guys Get no-till going in their countries at some point in Bangladesh and Pakistan in a bigger way. I'm sure there are, there is some already, but even in a bigger way. So, like, uh, with that, oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, so yeah, we use um, conventional methods of, of tilling. We don't use like a big tractor or anything like that, but um, just uh, almost natural way of tilling. <laughs> yeah, but I will tell you, I bet. It isn't very natural because you are doing what I'm sure I know it's right when I came in that Steve was talking about. You are turning that soil over. You're taking that dead stuff underneath and pulling it to the top. That is the traditional way of tilling. Right. Um, so, um, so anyway, um, Steve, thanks again. Mark, thank you. Yeah. Audience, thank you. Arif, thank you. And we will probably give it a give it a, a, a say a bye bye and and do you want to end with Thank anything, you. Steve? Give last words of wisdom. Um, uh, I would say this: long live the soil. Yeah, that's good. It's a good one. Well, thanks, everybody. Mark, why don't you take us out? Hey, everybody! I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.